O God of glorious grace, because you gave Jesus Christ your only Son to be born for us, who by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, his mother, was made truly man, yet without the stain of sin, that we might be cleansed from sin and given the right to become your children. Show us tonight our blessed hope as we worship you this Christmas Eve. And through seeing your glory, break through. Show us your love and teach us tonight. Train us and make us zealous for good works because of the love you have given us in our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You know, there is no passage that summarizes all that the Bible comes to and is about so well as Titus 2, right? Uh, The child prophesied about in Isaiah 9, upon whom the government would be on his shoulders, he's appeared in Titus 2, so we can wait. The Son of God spoken of in Hebrews that brought salvation has appeared so we can have hope in the things we're going through. And the baby born in Luke 2 has come to do Titus 2 in our lives and hearts to transform us each and every day. All these scriptures we've read tonight are about Jesus Christ who came to bring salvation for all people, to redeem us and to purify for himself by training us and teaching us to wait. So I want us to consider Titus 2 a little bit more. Now in Paul's letter to Timothy uh, here, right, Timothy is this young pastor, uh, Timothy, Titus, I know what letter I'm preaching on, uh, Titus, right, is this young pastor in Crete. So uh, Crete is sort of a a rough and tumble place. And Paul is telling Titus he needs to hold on to these truths that he's learned from all these scriptures, many of which we read tonight. And he needs to continue to teach the people these truths and to live in this way because of these truths, because the only way these Christians in Crete are going to live lives of Christian love is by holding on to the truth of the scriptures that point to Jesus Christ. Because the way that Jesus came to teach was in total contrast to the way of the people of Crete, right? The people of Crete were defined by greed, do what's best for me, me first, by violence, might makes right, by self-concern, do what makes me feel good. And the people of Crete were also defined by their their hostility towards this strange new religion that kept talking about some god becoming a human being like all of us, entering into the sufferings of human life. Who wants a god like that? I want a powerful god that crushes my enemies. Not a weak little puny god that comes as a baby. The Cretans said, Forget that, God. Come join our culture for advantage and privilege and the promise of leaving suffering and obscurity behind for comfort and power. While the God of these Christians said, Come, suffer, seek godliness. Don't have things go your own way and wait for your hope to appear. 
And today we are called to by the world to all manner of hopes, to live other than humble ways for our own benefit. Don't wait. Have what you want now. Because following our way will be more comfortable, more profitable. You'll have more power to make things go the way you think they ought to go. And Paul says to the Christians in Crete and to us today, no, hope has appeared. Salvation is come. Don't run to those things. Don't abandon the good news because you have something tangible to hang on to right now. And you have a coming reason to continue this distinct, sacrificial, unimpressive, loving Christian way. And Paul makes his argument for this telling them three things. What has happened, the life they're now meant to live, and what is yet to be revealed. Uh, or put another way, the, he, Paul talks about the first appearing, in this short passage, four verses, the first appearing, this present age, and the second appearing. Right? So at the beginning in verse 11, Paul starts by telling us about the first appearing writing, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. For all people. We should never talk or think that salvation is closed to anyone, for salvation is for all people. And to assume that salvation is closed to someone still living is less than Christian. Just because someone doesn't believe yet, just because someone lives a certain way now, doesn't mean they're lost forever. And that's why these Christians lived as a witness, befriending these people in Crete, as we're called to do in our own place. And I want to say to you, Christians, if this Christmas Eve there's someone you have very little hope for, be encouraged. Where there are tears, there is hope. For no one is ever so gone in this life that there is no hope for salvation. And that means that if you're here tonight, and you're like, okay, I have no idea what all these scriptures were about. But you do wonder if this Christianity thing might be true, but you're not so sure maybe it's true for you. Especially because maybe... You have lived a certain way. I want to tell you this good news is for you tonight. There is no one here and no one that could attend that is or ever will be excluded from putting their faith in Jesus Christ. All you must do is repent and believe. I guess technically that's an exclusion. You do have to repent and believe. But that's all you have to do. This good news is for all for all who will repent and believe. And it brings salvation to all, all types of people, to all who will repent and believe. This good news is for you tonight, whoever you are. There's lots of people I don't know, so uh, it's for all of you. I, it's for all of you. Yes, even for you. You cannot be so bad that you sin your way beyond God's grace. But what is the salvation you keep talking about? What, what does it involve? What am, I, what am I being saved from? Titus 2, verse 14, Paul explains. 
this salvation, saying that Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, when he starts talking about lawlessness, I think we all agree that we want those who act lawlessly put in jail, right? The guy that robbed your house, maybe the guy that cut you off because he was speeding and caused your wreck. But our view of lawlessness is far too uh, high. Far too high. Yeah, the bar is actually much uh, lower in the sense that even our smallest sins separate us. Because our smallest imperfections where we, are, where we do not love perfectly is lawlessness. God's perfect law of love says all lack of love is lawlessness. And all lawlessness needs justice. And since we all fail to love, well, I do, then we all fall short of the law. We all have hearts of lawlessness. And to acknowledge our failures of love To recognize lawlessness in our own hearts is the first step to discovering what true love really is. In our world that is filled filled with sin, sin out there and sin in here, and there's plenty in here, we have to first understand that we don't love in order to begin to see what true love really is. To understand the greatness of God's law To understand how exacting God's law is, is the first step to understanding how great God's love is. Because we begin to see how much he loves us despite how much we break his law and how little we love. And I want to suggest to you, because we know we've messed up loving others, and we all know, right, everyone's got that memory. I've got a memory in mind of ways I have not loved well, we, we wonder if others will still love us, if they could still love us. We have self-doubt that we're lovable. And I want to tell you that feeling is right. You should feel that way just a little bit. Because that feeling is telling you that you failed to love and failing to love truly is wrong. But the Bible also says God has the sort of love that never fails. God has a love that no violation or mistake or or sin could ever mess up. And he has that love for all who repent and believe. Because, friends, God knows our violations. God knows our lawlessness. God knows our sins. God knows our lack of love. And God knows our mess-ups more and better than we do. And they are more hurtful to him than they are to us. And he, nonetheless, has a love for us that will not break for anyone who looks to Jesus Christ in faith. God is so loving that he did something to take care of all of our lawlessness. And it was way more than jail. Jesus took on hell and sin itself 
Because he started by coming into our world full of sin as a full human being with all the sufferings that came with it. That's the miracle of Christmas. And though he himself never sinned, he was sinned against time and time again. So God became a man and lived a perfectly loving life. And yet, God Almighty, who those Psalms told us he could call in angels and do amazing things, nonetheless allowed himself to be taken, arrested, and to die on the cross like the most lawless and loveless of criminals. And for those who believe they've failed at love, we can look to Jesus Christ and see how he has loved us perfectly. And we can have hope that the cross redeems us by paying our ransom. He didn't just go to jail for us, he suffered hell for us. The cross is the death we owe, the price for our lovelessness, our lawlessness. In Christ, God's love is appeared, our sins are forgiven, our shame is washed away, and our dignity is restored. That's good news. But it doesn't stop there. In this good news, we receive instruction, power, and love for living in this life now, in this present age. As we grow in knowing God's grace more and more. As we see ourselves as more sinful, we see God as more loving. And that actually transforms us. As we come to understand who we are and how amazing it is what has been done for us in Jesus Christ, we're not only overwhelmingly glad, happy, and thankful for what has been done for us in the past, but flowing from that thankfulness and the power of the Holy Spirit given us, this grace, uh, verse 13, 12, says, trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Now, you have to see the grace before you get all this other stuff. But let there be no doubt, if you know grace, grace changes you. If you know forgiveness, you will also know repentance of sins. Grace always and truly changes those who have experienced it. Now, there might be at least, there will be several different responses to this talk of renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions and living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. There might be the response of a tender conscience that leads to shame. There might be the response of cynicism leading to hopelessness. And there might be the response of anti-religion leading to dismissal. Some of you tonight have tender consciences. You say, I hear what you're saying, preacher. I feel that sin. I feel what you're talking about. Woe is me because I do not live up to this Jesus standard. And you're right. You don't. I'm not going to tell you you do because neither do I. We are hopeless outside of grace. But Paul has good news for us. Paul says here, I am being trained into these things. If you dig into it, it's in the present tense. Not I have been. Not not the past tense. This grace is still working itself out in our lives. And that's good news because it means Jesus already knows we're not all we should be. And he loves you anyway, okay? 
He loves you anyway. Don't lose sight of that. It means Jesus already knows the lovelessness still in our hearts, and he delights in us anyway. He has already saved us, and he will not let us go. We are his possession. Jesus already knows the lovelessness in our hearts, and he wants to teach us his way of love now so that we can joyfully embrace, and because of all that, because he loves us, we can joyfully embrace the learning process. Well, I'm learning to love a little bit better today, despite my failures. And that will keep you from getting sucked down the vortex of shame. Others hear this description of renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions and living self-controlled, upright and godly lives, and they just become cynical, right? Because this sounds like a call to New Year's resolutions, and uh, let's face it, ain't none of us kept none of those, right? Someone's kept a New Year's resolution out there. Well, you're better than I am, right? Most of us fail at keeping New Year's resolutions. And this description of the Christian life can ring in our ears as a call to shape up, get right, do good. And we just know we can't make it, so we get cynical and grow hopeless. Because we know ourselves. We know how often we failed. And when we hear of that godly and zealous life, it sounds good. Except we don't feel very zealous. We've tried and we just get tired. We've blown it so many times. And in our failure, we conclude we're just not top-tier Christians. This zealous life is a great ideal for those spiritual giants of faith. But not us. And so we become hopeless. Or maybe you're visiting tonight. And you don't normally visit churches. There's enough guests here. I'm assuming at least one of you got dragged along by family and you kind of wish this would be over. Sorry, I preach long. It's Christmas Eve and you had to come. And you hear all this jargon about uprightness and godliness and it sounds like something for stuck-up, self-righteous religious people that you don't like. I don't like them either. You're enlightened. And so you have an anti-religious response. Religious character ideals maybe are for suckers. And most of the people who name those ideals are hypocrites anyway, right? Yes, they are. Me, first and foremost. So you dismiss what I have to say, and not without good reason for how badly some Christians have acted. But I've already told you, Christians have lawlessness in their hearts. We fail to love all the time. The whole point of this good news is that we don't get saved by how good we do, but by how good our Savior is. And so all these ways I've just mentioned, anti-religious, cynical, and hopeless, are all wrong ways of understanding this passage and the character traits that Paul names. Because if you hear these character traits and know what a a failure you've been to live this out, and you become awashed in hopelessness, you don't understand this passage. It's not about getting you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And if this sounds like religious mumbo-jumbo not worth doing, or it's an ideal that Christians don't live up to, while you're right that we don't live up to it, you still don't understand this passage because that's not what it's about. 
This passage is not a call to do better, nor is this passage a call to to be a strict, old-fashioned stick in the mud. In fact, you know, renouncing ungodliness is not renouncing fun, joy, or happiness. Okay? Self-controlled, upright, and godly is not controlling, uptight, and stodgy. And when you run into Christians like that, they might not even be saved because they don't understand the gospel. Some of you are like, wait, did he just say I might not be saved? Maybe you aren't. Who knows? Run to Jesus. Wherever you're at in that, run to Jesus. Because as you get to know grace, these character traits are what slowly but surely come into your life as your life is invaded by grace. And it leads to love and joy and peace and purity and zealousness and yes, good works. But renouncing ungodliness is not some unhappy task you do by sheer religious willpower. It's something you joyfully learn. That is, it is beautiful as you bathe in God's love and salvation and holy character. And if that's not the way you're learning holiness, if you're not learning holiness as joy and love and peace, maybe you need to look at Jesus afresh to understand that the moral qualities the Christian life calls for have to start with grace. The only way you will find zealousness for good works that isn't a burden is if you're fueled by hope in what God has done and will do, not in your own religious ability to meet these ideals. These character traits are both good and possible to an extent, but only if you understand what actually enables them Grace through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Anything that tries to stir you to godliness without hope in the grace of Jesus Christ is suspect at best and deadly poison at worst. Mere moral instruction offers no salvation. Mere morality offers only condemnation. If you have to earn love, and if you have to be good enough to get grace, it's not Jesus. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not watch out. I'm telling you why. Is not Jesus. I'm thankful Santa isn't real. Wait, is he allowed to say that with all these kids here? Yes, I am. Because I want them to learn the gospel. And Santa is anti-gospel. At least the way America portrays him. Hope for your life and the life to come that joyfully grows as with pleasures and lightning burdens because you know salvation is outside of you. Being able to look at your failures and still have joy and gladness despite how bad at loving you are because of how much God has loved you. Now that's Jesus. Being fueled to learn the way of the gift of grace and good works of zealousness because you know it's all a gift anyway, not because you merit something, that is Jesus. But that life only comes when you know what Jesus has done and what he will do. The second appearing fuels our hope for living now. Our hope for later sets up how we behave now. 
Our hope for later, for the second appearing, is rooted in something that is more than hope. It's historical fact. That is, our hope in the second appearing is rooted in the first appearing. The birth, life, death, body, blood, bones, toenails, and hair, resurrection, and ultimately ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. But our hope isn't only fueled by the past. It is fueled by what what we're looking forward to in the second appearing. Because Jesus is coming back, Paul says here. Jesus is coming back to give final deliverance, full healing, and to take us into his own possession because we already belong to him, and by his power he will make us pure as a lover takes his beloved into his arms who has been transformed because of how much they've been loved. Because of what has happened, we have a solid future hope for what will happen. But to access grace now, we have to look both backwards and forward. Both appearances of Jesus save us, and both appearances change our lives. And so Paul tells us that part of our training in godliness now is waiting for our blessed hope in the future, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, at the second appearing. My friends, Christmas Eve is not only about the birth of Jesus, although it is about that, because Christmas is a great miracle. God became a man. But Christmas Eve is the culmination of the season of Advent. The last four weeks we've been in a season where the days were getting shorter, and historically the church has thought about the darkness of our world and looking for deliverance. We remember about our forefathers, our our Jewish forebearers before Jesus came, that they were awaiting the Messiah, that means the Savior. And he has come, Christ has come, Christ has died, Christ has risen again. And so for us now, we look for the final salvation, the second appearing when Jesus will come and finally judge the living and the dead. Now what comfort and hope is judgment? What? Well, the Heidelberg Catechism says that in all my sorrows and persecutions, with uplifted head, I look for Jesus, who offered himself for my sake to the judgment of God and has removed all curse and judgment from me. And when he comes as judge from heaven, he shall cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation and shall take me with all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joys and glory. That means whatever you're facing, The person who's hurt you, the way you've been treated by that one, you, if you are with Christ, will one day either be reconciled by grace or you will stand with Christ with your enemy cast down, which means you can trust Christ with that situation and you don't have to take vengeance yourself. It means that whatever suffering you face, You can face it now with hope. We wait with hope because our hope is sure. And so we wait eagerly, certainly. And the waiting itself trains us. But we can wait because we know our hope is sure because of all the things that have happened in the past tell us that assuredly the second appearing shall come. God became a human when Jesus became a baby, so surely, and Jesus lived and died died to save us from our sin and make us his own. And by grace, he's at work in our lives even now. 
And so we know that he is coming back. And we can be zealous for good works. Hopeful for others' salvation. And hopeful for ourselves to continue growing. Because we know he constantly forgives our failures. And that he is teaching us. He is making us his own. He is purifying us now while we wait. And that means this purification, yes, even with all of our sin, is actually a joyful time. As you face your sin day in and day out, as you repent and believe more and more, you're learning. You're being purified. And the Father smiles upon you because he is purifying you through these things. And it's okay. It's not okay that we sin. No, no, listen to the context. I already explained substitutionary atonement and all that. It is okay. It is okay. You're saved if you're in Christ. So you're being purified now. And you're going to be okay. Because Christ is going to come again. And you will be forgiven. And when he comes again, he will make everything, including you and me, completely right. That's the profound thing. Paul doesn't just say Jesus gave himself to redeem us, but to purify us as his own possession. It is he who purifies us. It is he who is orchestrating everything in our waiting. And living in expectation of that lets you embrace good works with joy. Right? This is the grace-oriented version of Santa Claus's coming to town. It's not fear of condemnation from Krampus or coal in our stockings, so you better be good for goodness sake. It's, oh, I get to work on being good, and even though I keep being bad, I know he's still going to continue to treat me with grace because Jesus has been nice for the naughty and to the naughty because we were all on the naughty list. And Jesus has come and is coming to make us complete and fulfill all your hopes no matter what and transform you when you see him. As 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. For when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Henceforth there is laid up for us the crown of righteousness, with the, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to you on that day, and all who have loved his appearing. Someday we will see him face to face and be made like him purified. And this pattern of instruction in Titus 2, here are these good truths, so live this way, is instruction rooted in God's grace. And it flows throughout the Bible. It is instruction and encouragement that flows from knowing you've already been loved and are loved completely in Jesus Christ. And nothing less than that will give you joy and peace. Don't be good to be loved. But Christian, you are loved in Christ. So love as you have been loved. That's what will transform us. The miracle of Christmas is good news. God came into the world to love us. Alleluia, to us a child is born. O come, let us adore him. Let's pray. O God, you have caused this holy night to shine with the brightness of the true light. Grant that we who have known the mystery of that light on earth may also enjoy him perfectly in heaven, where with you and the Holy Spirit he lives and reigns. One God and glory everlasting. Amen.